back to our Answers Bible Curriculum. Answers Bible Curriculum Sunday School. Let's begin. We're coming near the end of our first quarter in the second year with this material. The theme of our study for this quarter, as you can see on the screen, has been obedience and disobedience. <clears throat> Last week, we saw how the theme, this theme interacted with God's rejection of Saul as king. Let's review a little bit. What two sins did Saul commit that caused God to announce to Saul that God had rejected Saul? What was one of those great sins? Yeah, Danny. That's right. He failed to fulfill the mission that God had given him to destroy, utterly destroy the Amalekites and their animals. He spared Agag, and he spared the best of the animals. What was his other great sin? Yeah, sure. He, that's right. He offered animal sacrifice instead of Samuel. He wouldn't wait for Samuel. He did it himself. And when confronted over these sins, Saul protested his innocence by blaming others and by seeking the Lord's favor via animal sacrifice. He says, all right, I may have done those things, but I did sacrifice to God. But what does Samuel say is more precious to God than any sacrifice? True obedience, that's right. Obedience is more sweet to God. Now Saul's sins were very great. And as the king and leader of Israel, he was even more accountable than a normal person to God. But what was in Saul's heart that kept leading him to sin in these ways? We tried to examine the root of Saul's sins last week. What were some roots of his sin? Fear. Fear of fear of man especially, but fear in general. Not trusting that the Lord would provide for him. Thinking that um, he needed to fear man. What else? Yeah. He wasn't... You, Right. Yeah, we did know that last week. He kept saying, the Lord your God instead of the Lord my God. So, yeah, in a real sense, he was not treating Yahweh as his Lord. What else? Yeah, his pride. Remember, he sets up a monument to himself. He's trying to show off Agag as a captive king. He takes the role of priest, pride, fear of man, the trust and external earthly provisions for his security rather than the invisible God, all of these were at the root of his sins. And because he didn't deal with those issues, he kept finding himself falling and failing the Lord's commands. Really, God, or Saul makes the same exchange that Israel does. Israel wanted to exchange God for the security of a human king, and Saul wanted to exchange God also for the security of man's favor and for the strength of armies. But this was a foolish exchange because the security that he supposedly gained was illusory and he lost God, the greatest treasure and security of all. These things that he obtained, the favor of man and his army strength, they never actually made Saul feel secure. If we go through the rest of the Old Testament, you see that he's very insecure all the time. But worst of all, these things could not keep for him that which he seemed to desire most. The kingship. He was going to lose it. Let us beware of believing the, the lies that Saul believed. That obtaining and keeping something in this world will make us more secure and more satisfied than simply having God take care of us. If we really trust God to be our security and to provide for us what we need, we will be obedient. Questions about last week's lesson? 
Okay. Well, God told Saul that God was going to give the kingdom to another person, to a better man, a man with a heart like God's. And that man is David. We're going to talk about him today. The title of the lesson is God Chooses David. Now, why does God choose David? And how does God make his choice known? And how are we to be instructed by God's raising up David and casting down Saul? We're going to investigate those questions together this morning. Here's our outline. Take a look at the anointing of David in 1 Samuel 16, 1-13. Then we'll discuss at length why God chose David. And then we'll examine David's arrival into the court of Saul in 1 Samuel 16, 14-23. So just focusing on that one chapter of scripture today. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would speak clearly through me now as I seek to explain your word. Help, um, help me to be able to, or give me the words to speak. And I pray that though I seek to be faithful in this task, Father, you must do the work in hearts. I pray, Spirit, that you would accomplish your great work of sanctification, of conviction, and of encouragement that your church should be built up. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's start by looking at David's anointing in 1 Samuel 16, 1-13. So please open your Bibles and turn there. Recall that in the previous chapter, which we looked at last time, Saul has just failed in his mission to the Amalekites. Samuel rebukes Saul. He announces God's rejection of Saul for a second time. And then Samuel goes home, never again to see Saul. But all the while, he is grieved over Saul. And even God says that he regrets making Saul king. Now we'll look at verse 1 of chapter 16. Follow along with me. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, Do you come in peace? He said, In peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Next Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is tending the sheep. But we will not sit down. Until he comes, or until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. 
Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. All right. Let's begin our analysis of this text with simple observations. God caused Samuel to stop grieving over Saul, but instead to set about commissioning God's replacement king. Where does God send Samuel? To Bethlehem. Right. To where Jesse lives. Now Samuel expresses concern trip. Of what is Samuel afraid? That Saul's going to kill him. That's right. But God tells Samuel what to say to Saul and to any others that might question what Samuel is doing. What is Samuel to say? I'm here to offer sacrifice. That's why I'm here. And he's got a heifer as proof. Take that heifer with you. You're going to offer the heifer as a sacrifice. Now, how is Samuel going to meet with Jesse if he's just going to offer sacrifice? That's right. He's going to invite Jesse to the sacrifice. So he does this. He journeys to Bethlehem. How did the elders of Bethlehem react when they see Samuel arrive? They're afraid. Do you come in peace? They're afraid. Samuel says, I do come in peace. And he invites the elders and the family of Jesse to the sacrifice. Now, what does Samuel note about Eliab, Jesse's son, that makes Samuel think that Eliab is God's next king? Yeah. Yeah, his appearance. Uh, we don't hear that specifically from Samuel, but he says, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And then God says, don't look at his appearance or his, what? Stature, which means it's height. Don't look at those things because I've rejected Eliab. God doesn't look at the outward appearance but the heart. How many sons passed before Samuel? Seven. But each time Samuel says, the Lord has not chosen this one. Now David, the youngest son of Jesse, was not there with the rest of the family at the sacrifice. Why not? He was tending the sheep. When Samuel hears there's one more son, he says, we're not going to sit down to eat until David comes. We're not going to enjoy the sacrificial meal. When David comes, David is described as ruddy and handsome, but beautiful eyes. Remember, eyes are particularly important to the Hebrew concept of beauty. If you remember Leah, Jacob's wife, what was her one drawback? She had weak eyes. So that, that was kind of central to what they thought a beautiful person looked like. What does ruddy mean? means red. Yeah, so this means or it's red or reddish, so either refers to his skin or his hair. He's either red-haired or had like a red tone to his skin. This same word is used to describe Harry Esau at his, in his birth, at his birth at Genesis 25. <coughs> what description of both Saul and Eliab, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> is missing from David? Yeah, Dwayne. Okay. That's right. He's not tall. He's apparently not tall or kingly looking. Now, God tells Samuel that David is God's chosen one, and he tells Samuel to anoint him with oil. And Samuel does so. He anoints David in the midst of his brothers. And this must have been a surprising and perplexing development to all at the sacrificial feast. The youngest son of Jesse, a shepherd, a youth, is being anointed by Samuel, God's prophet, in the sight of all. When also in the Bible do we see older children being passed over while younger children receive honor and blessing? 
Jacob and Esau. That's right, Jacob was the younger. And where else? Joseph and his brothers. Joseph was honored among them. And even between Joseph's two sons, the younger was given greater honor and blessing. What happens to David as a result of his anointing? The Spirit of the Lord mightily comes upon him from that day forward. And we don't hear about the rest of the sacrificial celebration in Bethlehem, but after the anointing, Samuel goes home to Ramah. Now that we've made these observations, let's interpret. Let's ask some interpretive questions. Why is Samuel concerned that anointing a new king would cause Saul to kill Samuel? Why does he think that doing so will result in execution? Yeah, Rob. Yes, I wanted to be king. That's right. He didn't want any threats to his kingship. He didn't want anybody else to be anointed king. So if he knew that was going on, Samuel expected that Saul would try to kill him. This is the same thing, same thing we see with Herod, right? In the New Testament, when he hears that there's a king of the Jews somewhere in his territory, find out where he is so I can go worship him. No, so I can go kill him. I don't want any threats. And we see this later with Saul's interactions with David. As he sees David become more and more of a threat, he seeks to kill him. Now, was, was Samuel's explanation as to why he was going to Bethlehem truthful or deceptive? It was truthful. You might say, but, but was it deceptive too? Well, Samuel does tell the truth. He is truly going to Bethlehem to offer a sacrifice at the Lord's direction. But Samuel leaves out, and whenever he answers questions, he leaves out the more important part of his going to Bethlehem. His more important purpose, which is to anoint a new king. Now, is this deception? I don't think that's a great word to describe what Samuel is doing. But if you maintain that it is deception, well, it's not unrighteous. Because who tells Samuel to do it? God. Unless you want to accuse a God of sin, you can't find fault with Samuel here. God is a God of truth. God cannot lie. Yet God permits and even commands Samuel to share some true information while also withholding other true information. This is in line with the biblical principle, principle that we've discussed in previous classes. Christians may never lie, but they can and sometimes should withhold part of the truth in certain situations. With what kind of oil does Samuel anoint David? It's not explicitly stated here. It just says oil. But it's best for us to understand this as the holy oil from the tabernacle. This is not simply olive oil or some other kind of oil that people often anointed themselves with to improve their appearance. That was basically how you made yourself look nice. You anointed yourself with oil. This is the kind of oil that we see at Solomon's coronation, Solomon's anointing. In 1 Kings 1.39, we read, Zadok the priest then took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. That is, the tent of meeting. That wasn't any old tent. That was the tabernacle. The temple hadn't been built. The holy oil of the tabernacle was going to be used to anoint Solomon. The oil of the tent, this holy oil, is described in Exodus 30. Also, it's called the anointing oil. It originally was part of cleansing and setting apart the holy objects of the tabernacle. Therefore, by pouring this oil on first Saul, and then David, Samuel, 
from God were designating these kings as set apart among the people and before the Lord. Indeed, this meant that the king had a special commission and sanction from God. It's no accident that David, though he is anointed to be the next king, he refuses to do any harm to Saul, saying explicitly, I will not lift my hand up against the Lord's what? Anointed. It's a big deal. He's been anointed by God. I'm not going to mess with that. The people were to have reverence for God's anointed kings, just as they did the holy objects of the tabernacle. They were anointed with the same holy oil. Now for the most important question. Why did God choose David to replace Saul as king? There are a number of ways that we can accurately answer this question. Well, what's one? Yeah, Steve. Oh, you're talking about the coming Messiah. Yeah, so part of it is, is, is the fulfillment of God's promises. Some prophecies that haven't been said yet, but some even that have, like um, back in Genesis where the throne or the scepter is not going to depart from Judah um, until Shiloh comes, and to him will be the obedience of all the peoples. That looks at not just a king from Judah, but also kings and even a special king from Judah that is to come. So part of the reason he chooses David, David's in the line of Judah, and it's part of fulfilling his promises to Israel. What else? Or why else? Yeah, Ron. Yeah, so as part of his fulfillment of what he said to Saul, I promised that you would lose the kingship. I'm giving it to another man, and I'm going to do that. But there's a, there's a special quality to this other man. He's not just some other random guy. What's the special quality? Yeah, Dwayne. That's right. God had promised to Saul that I'm going to pick a man who has a heart like mine. We'll talk more about that in just a second. But God selected David because David had a godly heart. Why else? Yeah, I think um, the fact that David is a shepherd is going to be important for multiple reasons. One is uh, just as some practical wisdom for kingship. It also has to do with some of the pictures that God intends to show of himself. But also, a shepherd is not a very exalted position. I mean, David wasn't allowed to come to the sacrifice, which was the place of honor, because he had to go take care of the sheep. That was, and it was the, apparently the job given to the youngest, and the youngest is not going to get the best job. So being a shepherd was not, not honorable. And yet God says, I'm choosing a shepherd to be the next king of Israel. Pardon me for one moment. So we see a number of different reasons for why God chooses David. Let's talk about some of these a little bit more in detail. 
we've noted that one reason that we can say that God chose David is because David was righteous. David had a godly heart. Saul, or God said to Saul, as Dwayne noted in 1 Samuel 13, I've sought out for myself a man after my own heart. In 1 Samuel 15, God says to Saul, I'm giving the kingdom to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And then he corrects, God corrects Samuel's misunderstanding of who the anointed king would be by saying, don't look at his appearance. I don't do that. I look at the heart. By implication saying, the one I choose is going to have a good heart. So David has a good heart. David was chosen by God because David was righteous. David had genuine faith, which manifested itself in genuine obedience. He had a heart like God's own. In a sense, the exaltation of the exaltation of David to the kingship was a reward to David for his righteousness. But as we are aware of the rest of Scripture, we should ask this corollary, why did David have such faith? that manifested in a righteous life. He was chosen because he was righteous, but why was he righteous? Yeah. Exactly. Because God chose to be kind to him. God chose to make David righteous. God mercifully gave David the gift of faith. There's not something innately in David that made him righteous, or even made him more prone to choose righteousness or faith. David himself confesses in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, he's not saying that the act of his conception was sinful. He's saying that I've been a sinner since I began to exist. David was an inheritor of the spiritual death of his forefather Adam, just like everyone else. He was a born rebel against God, a sinner committed to his own way, unrepentant and unable to repent, radically corrupt. But God had mercy on David. He opened David's eyes to God's truth. He gave David the gift of faith. God's spirit gave life to David's spirit. And David therefore believed and became obedient to God. David did nothing to deserve this kindness. It was an act of undeserved favor, or what we call grace. So yes, it is true that God bestowed the kingship on David as a result of David's righteousness, But it's also true that David was righteous because God gave David the gift of saving faith. So therefore, another way to actually answer the question of why did God choose David to be king has nothing to do with David at all. It's simply because God chose to. It pleased God to do so. It pleased God to show mercy on David by giving him faith and then rewarding him with the kingship. It simply pleased God to make David king. God did not have to choose to give David the gift of faith. David would still have been responsible for his chosen path of sin. But without God's saving intervention, David would never have chosen to follow after God. And without a heart of faith, God would have had no reason to give David the kingship. So the choice for king ultimately was not based on David's righteousness. It was on God's good pleasure. This may remind you of the same realization that we made about Abraham and God's covenant with Abraham. Because God tells Abraham, you may remember, that God is going to set up a unilateral covenant of blessing with Abraham. That is, regardless of what Abraham does, God is going to fulfill certain promises. But at the same time, later, God tells Abraham, because you have acted in righteous faith, I will bring to pass all the promises that I've made in my covenant with you. Which is it, God? 
is your covenant of blessing unilateral or bilateral? Does it depend on one person or does it depend on both? Is it unconditional or is it conditional? Well, the answer is yes. To explain again, the covenant of blessing was dependent on Abraham's righteousness. That is, Abraham needed to have faith and demonstrate that faith in his obedience. But God himself was going to be the one to provide Abraham with that necessary faith. And this way, God is both the provider of and the rewarder of righteousness. He says, I can only bless you if you're righteous, but I'm going to make you righteous. In that sense, the covenant is completely unilateral. It's the exact same for us. Who will receive the blessed inheritance of God for eternity? Well, those who persevere in faith. Who will persevere in faith? Well, those who God calls and to whom God gives the gift of faith. Ephesians 2, 4 to 10 says all this explicitly. I'll I'll read it to you. Ephesians 2, 4 to 10. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So if you hear the first part of this verse, it says God's chose certain people to just rain down blessings for eternity, to show his rich kindness for eternity. And then the rest of the verse says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So you can see the three stages there once again. God calls certain people. He enables them to do, or yeah, by faith, he enables them to actually live lives of obedience. And then he rewards them for all eternity for their faith and obedience. But it's all of God. It's all a gift of God. So back to David. Yes, it is true that David was chosen as king because of his righteousness, but that righteousness was provided by God in the first place. So it's also true that David was simply chosen according to God's good pleasure. Two other reasons I want to explore a little bit more for why God chose David. Uh, As Steve mentioned, God is going to be faithful to his promises, his promises of judgment to Saul, his promises to do good to Israel, his his promise to send a deliverer, that would, um, that would have the obedience of all the peoples. And David, as, the, as a righteous man from Judah, would be necessary to fulfill these promises. But also, another big reason for why God chooses David, and we touched on this a little bit already, is that God was going to use foolishness to glorify himself. Now I want you to turn to another section of Scripture. Hold your place in 1 Samuel, but turn to 1 Corinthians 1 for a moment. 1 Corinthians 1. If you were in home groups last Sunday or Friday, you probably looked at this passage a little bit. 1 Corinthians 1, I want us to look at verses 26 to 31. Because we see a gospel principle set forth. In context, Paul's using it to rebuke the Corinthians and exhort them to unity, to stop being proud against one another. But it's a principle that applies in many situations. 
Look at verses 26 to 31 in 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is God's heart. God loves to confound the wisdom of the so-called wise men of the world and to show the so-called strong their utter powerlessness. How does he do this? By exalting the lowly, by taking the weak, the ignorant, and the despised and turning them into powerful and glorious instruments of God. And when the weak and the foolish triumph, who gets the glory? It's only God. Like he says, I do this so that no man may boast except in the Lord. God delights to raise up and choose David, the youngest, the one given shepherd duty, the one who's not even brought to the sacrificial celebration, the one whose appearance does not look kingly. It's beautiful, but it's not kingly. God chose not only to make such a one king, but to grant this one success at every turn and to even establish his line permanently over Israel's kingship. And indeed, to cause his own son, God's son, to come from the line of David. That is incredible honor. That is an incredible exaltation. And what is David's response to this? We haven't read it yet. It'll come later. Does he say, wow, how great I am. You must have found some really great stuff in me to do all this for me. No, he says, God, who am I? And what is my house that you should honor me in such a way? You deserve all the honor and praise, O God. I don't deserve any of it. You have been incredibly kind to me. God loves to do this kind of thing. He did it with David, and he's still doing it with his saints today. We are, as Paul described, we are the weak, we are the foolish, we are the ignorant according to the world, and we carry about with us a foolish gospel. But through God, we are more than conquerors, and we will one day be vindicated and exalted by God to even rule and reign with Christ. That's an incredible reversal. But God delights to do this. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Because in doing so, he gives the glory that he himself is due to himself. So certainly, these four reasons are at the heart of why God chooses to make David king. We could probably say others. Certainly, kind of through all this, it's a loving act of God to Israel. But these are some of the main reasons. But when would the kingship actually arrive for David? Well, not for some time. God ordained in God's own wisdom that David should enter into Saul's service and become a greater and greater blessing to Saul and to the people of Israel, but without becoming king. In the meanwhile, Saul becomes a greater and greater curse, both to himself and to the people. 
And we see the beginnings of that even in the next section of chapter 16. So back in 1 Samuel, look now at the second half of chapter 16, starting in verse 14. And we're going to read to the end of the chapter. By the way, apologize for my voice today. Still a little bit scratchy. <coughs> verse 14 to verse 23. 1 Samuel 16. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Saul's servants then said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp, and it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you, that he shall play the harp with his hand, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. And one of the young men said, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man. And the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the flock. Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread and a jug of wine and a young goat and sent them to Saul by David, his son. And David came to Saul and attended him, and Saul loved him greatly. And he became his armor-bearer. Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David now stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. So it came about, whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. Okay, let's analyze this section of text as well. Some quick observations. As the spirit of God comes mightily upon David, what happens to Saul? Spirit of God departs from him. And more than that, an evil spirit takes its place. Now, where's this evil spirit said to come from? From God. This evil spirit, also translated distressing or harmful spirit, is the cause of David coming to Saul's court. For what could David do that was supposed to ease Saul's anguish? He could play the harp skillfully. David is not only called a skillful musician here, but also a mighty man of valor, a warrior, a man prudent in speech, a handsome man, and one with whom the Lord is. And David's music is able to give Saul refreshment and relief whenever this evil spirit, this tormenting spirit, comes upon Saul. In fact, what becomes Saul's attitude toward David? He loves him. He grows to love David. And Saul is so pleased with David in general that he makes David his armor bearer. Now, what's an armor bearer, you ask? Well, this was a special servant's position in Israel's early monarchy. You don't see it later on after David's monarchy, but you do see it in Saul's time and David's time. The armor bearer, or the shield bearer, was a trusted martial companion who accompanied his master into battle. The armor bearer carried, carried extra weapons or equipment for his master, and the two formed a kind of battle duo. For example, if the master struck an enemy soldier with a ranged weapon, either by bow or by javelin, he wounded that enemy soldier, the armor bearer was to go at close range and finish off the enemy combatant. Armor bearers were also sometimes entrusted with the duty of, when asked by their master, to kill their masters so that the enemies could not torture, mutilate, or kill them themselves. So 
Saul's making David an armor bearer was a mark of great trust and affection. Now we've made these observations. Let's ask a few interpretive questions. Did Saul lose his salvation when the Spirit left him? No. No, he did not. Whether Saul is actually saved or whether he ever becomes saved is an entirely different question. Though most of what we see in Saul's life is pretty rotten fruit, even at the end of his life. But regardless of whether Saul is saved, Saul is saved, we should not understand the coming or leaving of the Holy Spirit within individuals in the Old Testament as referring to gaining or losing salvation. God is certainly active in the Old Testament in producing salvation and sanctification, just as he is in the New Testament times, but there is there's also a, a difference in the New Testament. But the Old Testament doesn't specifically describe that aspect of the Holy Spirit's work. Rather, in Old Testament times, whenever we hear about the Spirit of God coming upon a person, it's always for supernatural empowerment, either for service or for prophecy. Like on the craftsmen, when the tabernacle was being constructed, it said the Spirit of God came upon a certain guy, a certain, I think one or two guys, and they suddenly, or not suddenly, but they had the wisdom and skill necessary to form the various parts of the tabernacle and to direct others to help create those things. The Spirit came upon Jacob toward the end of his life, and he prophesied about the future of his descendants. Uh, Israel's judges many times have the Spirit come upon them as they set about to deliver Israel and lead Israel's armies into battle. Most famously in Samson, Samson was able to perform feats of supernatural strength because God's Spirit came upon him. The Spirit of God also came upon Saul, and Saul became supernaturally empowered in his role as king. God was granting Saul wisdom, strength, and fortitude of mind to do what he needed to do as the king of Israel. <clears throat> but understand that this empowerment of God's spirit does not make one invincible against sin, nor is it necessarily permanent. In fact, sin could cause the loss of such an equipping spirit of God. You may remember with Samson, well, we didn't go over it in this class, but you may know, when Samson gives up the secret of his strength, and his hair is cut. Judges 6.20 says the Lord departed from Samson. And Samson no longer was able to perform his feats of strength. Though God did later empower him once more in the temple of Dagon to destroy the Philistines. In a similar way, part of God's judgment of rejection on Saul is the removal of God's empowering spirit. The spirit leaves Saul. The especially empowering spirit leaves Saul. And it comes upon David so that David may fight, may praise, and may rule with special empowerment from the Lord. So no, we should not see the departure of the Spirit as something to do with salvation. What about this evil spirit? What is this evil spirit from God? This is a highly debated subject. Though, really, there's nothing wrong with us after some working through it in our minds, there's nothing wrong with us taking the description here at face value. That is, this is an evil spirit. That is, it is a demon sent by God to harass and afflict Saul. Now some would say, whoa, 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 whoa. This can't be an actual demon since it's sent by God. How can a righteous God control demons or send them to afflict people? And yet, 
if God is completely sovereign, which he is, he must have control of demons and indeed of all evil in the world. After all, in the Bible, God often sends the armies of wicked nations as judgments on other nations, or God ordains sinful atrocities as part of his judgment on specific persons or peoples. Does this make God evil? Is he the cause of sin, or is he the cause of evil? Absolutely not. James tells us emphatically that God is not a tempter, nor is he himself tempted. Paul furthermore says in Romans that, as the judge of all the world, God by definition must be righteous completely. And no man may use God's sovereignty as a way to excuse their own sin. People and demons are all completely responsible for their own evil acts, that which they desire to do. And God has and will judge people and demons for their evil. And yet, God is in complete control of matters. No evil can be done unless it is ordained by God for his glorious purposes. And we see this explicitly in the Bible. Satan has to ask God for permission to afflict Job. Even more interestingly there, after God grants Satan permission, and Satan comes back into Saul's court, God says, have you considered my servant Job? He holds to his integrity, though you incited me to afflict him without cause. Wait, I thought Satan did it. Well, God was in control. Furthermore, Satan ha- demands permission from Christ to sift Peter like wheat. The legion asks permission for Christ from Christ to enter the pigs. Again and again, we see the evil ones, they are under God's control. Martin Luther is reported to have once remarked, the devil is God's devil. That is to say, provocatively, Satan cannot act at all without the express decree of God. So what we're seeing here is two biblical truths that seem to contradict each other, but are actually both true at the same time. God exercises complete control over all things, including evil forces. And yet, God is not evil, nor the cause of evil. We cannot completely unravel how these truths fit together, but the Bible unapologetically presents to them both to us as true. Back to Saul here. Or, um, I'll say one more thing and then I'll get to your question. We need not search for some symbolic interpretation here for this evil spirit. You'd be like, oh, you know, was it just like a mental thing? Or, you know, this wasn't really a wicked spirit, was it? No, this was a real wicked spirit. It was allowed. It was ordained. You could even say it was sent by God, apparently, to cause mental agony for Saul. Some kind of mental agony. And we see later in his life various Manifestations of fear, anxiety, depression, maybe even hallucination because of this wicked spirit. But God sends this to Saul, yet he also sends and he ordains one who could skillfully play for Saul to dispel this affliction, the sweet psalmist of Israel, David. What was your question, Shay? Mm. Mm-hmm. 
You said a number of things, Shay. Uh, I'll make a, a couple comments on them. And then maybe we could talk more about this afterwards. But certainly we see other instances in the Bible where this connection between God's sovereignty and evil, especially demons, is, is really put in the forefront. In that other instance, I forget where it is, but there's a vision given to um, one of the prophets where he sees almost like a council before God. And he says, you know, how, how are we going to make this king go up to the battle and be, and be destroyed? And then um, different spirits offer different approaches. And then one says, I will be a lying spirit in his prophets, and I will cause them to tell him to go to battle. And God says, go and do so. They say, you know, God was in control of that. Is he, is he causing something evil to happen? Well, he's in control, and yet he's not the cause of evil. Or you mentioned Jesus being led into the wilderness to be tempted. It's very interesting how James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Because you might say, uh, wait, God's sovereign. Aren't temptations all from God, essentially? But he says, I don't want you to describe it in that way, because that seems to abdicate responsibility for yourself or for those who tempt you. He says, no, actually, when you're tempted, each one is led astray by his own lusts. And yes, it's true that God's sovereign, but don't try and put the responsibility on God. It's yourself. I think we could uh, apply that same understanding to other supposed problems in God's sovereignty and, and evil things um, in the Bible. But what was the last thing you said? Oh, I do want to be careful, though, when it comes to um, application to our own anxiety and fear. I would say, like, oh, you know, is this fear, is this anxiety, like, a special distressing spirit from God sent to me? Well, let's remember that Saul, probably not saved. So there's some things that are happening with Saul that, if you're a believer, should not be happening to you. But secondly, um, we, we do want to heed the exhortation from James that things like anxiety or anger or depression, these things are sin. And if we give way to those things, we are choosing to follow after sin. We can't be like, oh, you know, God sent me this anxiety. Uh, no, we are choosing to go after that anxiety. God may have allowed the circumstances or um, allow the temptation to come to you, but he is not making you anxious. He is not making you fearful, nor is he making you angry. If you choose to do any of those things, it is your sin, and you need to repent of it. So let's, we do want to make sure we don't go we don't apply this the wrong way in terms of how, how God might even use uh, evil spirits to afflict. Yeah. Okay. Mm. 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 Oh, yeah, that's, that's a good point. That's great, great points, Bill. So specifically, that instance that I mentioned before about the lying spirit, that is, I think you said, the prophet Micaiah um, speaking to Jehoshaphat and Ahab, who were both sinning and going out to, to fight um, in a way that, that God didn't want them to do. And that lying spirit and their defeat in battle was an act of judgment, just as really this spirit on Saul is an act of judgment. It is true that, um, as you pointed out, that God does allow people to be tested with various afflictions. Even Saul says that there was a thorn in the flesh given to me, and that was under God's sovereign control. But the, these demonic activity that we're seeing here, they are acts of judgment. And I think, and we'll talk maybe, or this is one way that we can think about application is that if you <laughs> don't believe in the Lord, if you're not under the Lord's protection, then uh, the judgment of God is very real, both in this life and in the next. And you do not want to be placed into the hands of an angry God. 
Uh, we could say other things about that, but let's uh, move on for now. This evil spirit from God, which we have talked about. One other question I want to ask is, what does the author show us by giving us these details about David and Saul? What is he showing us about David and Saul? Spirit leaves Saul. Evil spirit comes upon him. He needs relief. God causes an official to say, oh, I know somebody who can give you relief. David comes to the court of Saul, loved by Saul, becomes his armor bearer. Why give us these details? Yeah, Roy. Yeah, we see God sovereignly arranging things. And what specifically is God doing or beginning to do, even in these details? Yeah, Danny. Exactly. We already see the beginning of God fulfilling what he promised to Saul. I'm going to remove the kingship from you, and I'm going to give it to a better person. And we see David being brought into Saul's court. And he's now going to become more and more active on behalf of Saul, on behalf of Israel. And he's going to gain the favor of Israel. And we're going to see that Saul becomes more and more cursed. We already see that curse being um, manifested here with the the departure of God's spirit and the coming of this evil spirit. But David becomes more and more of a blessing, even to Saul. What I find really interesting is that when we consider this truth of God judging those who dishonor him and raising up those who honor him, we've seen that twice here in 1 Samuel, first with Eli and Samuel, and then Saul and David. And in both instances, the replacement, the one being exalted, actually serves the one being judged. Samuel served Eli. David served Saul. Exactly sure what to make of that, but I did notice it. You going to say something, Danny? Yeah. Yeah, this is going to be one of the defining marks of David, as you pointed out, Danny. Even though he's anointed, he doesn't do anything. He could have perhaps thought, oh, I can do, I can start my own kingdom or I can raise up a rebellion, but he doesn't. He's very patient to wait for the Lord to give him the kingdom, and he will not raise his hand up against his anointed. In fact, again and again, even when Saul is doing evil to David, David is trying to do good to Saul. Saul tries to pin David to the, to- the wall twice with a spear. David's trying to like help him by, by playing music for him, and Saul's trying to kill him. Or even when Saul comes after him, he will not kill Saul. He fights Saul's battles. So we see just how great God's blessing to Israel is going to be through David, where he's even a blessing to his master who is rejected by God and who is going to later try and kill David. So we see Saul's cursed, David is blessed, but God is already accomplishing the rise of one and the fall of the other. Before we consider some application, any, any other questions about today's lesson? Yeah, Craig. Well, it was public, at least to a certain extent, just to repeat your question. Was the public aware of David's anointing? Was it a public event? Well, it was a public sacrifice that he uh, was part of in Bethlehem. And it says that David was anointed in the midst of his brothers. 
So at least his brothers saw it, and probably those who were at the sacrificial feast saw it because they're all there. I guess the sacrifice had been offered, and they're, they're going to eat of some of the sacrifice, probably the peace offering, which the offerers could eat part of. They're all sitting down to have this meal, and then before they can do that, he says, I have to anoint this youth with the holy oil of the tabernacle. Now, did they understand what that meant? I don't know. When Saul was anointed, it was private, or at least the, fir- uh, the first time. I'm not sure if he's anointed more than once. I don't think he is. But when Saul is anointed by Samuel, it was done in secret. He says, tell your servant to go away, and then he anoints him with the holy oil. So maybe it wasn't quite understood at that time what anointing with holy oil meant. They probably were asking questions like, uh, what did we just witness? But whether they understood the full extent of what that anointing meant, we can't say. Probably, I'm inclined to say that they didn't understand what was happening because no one reports it to Saul, like, oh, by the way, someone just got anointed king. In fact, it's the guy who we just invited to your court. No, because Saul's not suspicious of David. Not until David starts to gain favor in battle. So, kind of a long way to say, it was public, but it seems like people didn't understand the significance of what was happening. Other questions? Yeah, Danny. Yeah, great question. And part of it has to do with what we talked a little bit about already, but to repeat your question, God, as we pointed out, chooses David, gives David faith, makes David righteous, makes David king, but he didn't choose to give Saul faith. Saul was not righteous, and Saul lost the kingship. So why can God find fault with Saul when Saul was not going to be righteous if God didn't give him the faith? Well, people raise the same question to Paul in in Romans, and he, he answers it very interestingly a number of ways, but he says that God has mercy on whom he has mercy. He's not required to show mercy to all people. He hardens whom he wishes to harden, and he has mercy on whom he wishes to have mercy. You do not have a right to question God or lay the responsibility on God. No, your sin is completely your own, and you are judged for your sin. So Saul chose to not honor God, to not seek God, to not use God as his security. And God says, I'm going to judge you for that. David would have done the same thing. But God says, I'm going to be merciful to you. I'm going to open your eyes to my truth. I'm going to cause you to have faith, cause you to be righteous, and then I'm going to reward you for that by giving you the kingship. Now, this, is a, this is profound. It is even beyond us. God has the right to do this. We don't have the right to expect this. And when it happens, or when we see it happen, we just say, God, thank you for being merciful to me. I don't deserve this. And this is what we're going to be saying for all eternity. God, we didn't deserve the kindness that you gave us. We were all committed to our own ways. We would have been justly destroyed for going that way. You had been right to punish us for it, but you instead caused us to turn to you. Good question, Danny. As we uh, close today, let's consider two application questions. There are a number of applications from today's lesson, but two I want to draw your attention to. Questions for you to ask yourself. What kind of heart do you have before God? Is it like David's? That is, is it like God's heart? Do you genuinely desire to do all of God's will? Are you a man or a woman after God's own heart? You're a believer. You ought to be. That's what it means to be a believer. Or is it the case that you are like Saul? You have a heart like Saul's. 
You're willing to put up a good facade. You're willing to fulfill certain external religious requirements, but you are still devoted to something else other than God. If you believe your heart is good and you are full of faith in Christ, does then your heart manifest itself in a lifestyle of righteousness? Are your words, thoughts, and actions marked by goodness? Or does sin reign in various sections of your life? Jesus says that a man brings forth from his heart into his actions. An evil heart brings forth evil acts, and they defile a person. I cannot see your heart. I can sometimes see the fruit, but my ability to perceive is not perfect. But God sees your heart. God knows your heart. What does God say when he sees your heart? Other question. Do you delight in the foolishness of God's gospel? Are you glad to stand with God against that which is called wise, strong, praiseworthy today? And stand with those and that which is called weak, foolish, and shameful? Are you glad to be a fool for Christ's sake? For example, do you love to affirm the clarity, authority, and wisdom of the Bible in the face of those today who claim the Bible is inaccurate, outdated, or incomprehensible? Do you delight in placing your trust and satisfaction in God by eschewing the rat race of our world for more and more material treasures and security? That's foolish, according to the world wise according to God? Do you love to minister to and to stand with people that society places little value on today? The children, the sick, the elderly, the imprisoned, the unpopular, the poor, and the persecuted? Those, your kind of people? Do you want to minister to and stand with those people? Or do you rather crave the acceptance and recognition of the world? Do you seek their praise and affirmation? Do you find yourself embracing their practices and their attitudes? Those who pay no attention to God's word. Beware. Because God will ultimately cause the foolish to shame the wise and the weak to shame the strong. Because in doing so, God will show himself to be glorious and rebellious man in all his pomp to be utterly debased. God will vindicate the lowly, but he will oppose the proud. We have another week or two with our memory verse. There's no Sunday school next week because of Resurrection Sunday. But the following week, we'll finish out the quarter and finish uh, with a memory verse. And, um, yeah, so don't forget our memory verse. Yes, Carol. Uh, yes, next week, or, yes. But there's no fellowship portion, right, Dwayne? Right, yeah, so service begins at 11 o'clock next week and not 9.30 for Sunday school. But good opportunity to invite those who normally couldn't come to Sunday school or wouldn't come to church because of Sunday school. You can bring them to our main service. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your foolish and glorious, or foolish going to the world. It's not foolish at all. It's completely wise. We love the way that you do things, God, because you are glorious and you deserve all glory, and man does not deserve glory. Thank you for being so kind to us in your sovereignty. Lord, 
Cause us to know more and to celebrate more about you in today's service. In Jesus' name, amen.